I have the sweet joy of um, most weeks being able to just walk through the scriptures. Um, sometimes that looks like us unpacking a whole book, like we spent well over a year in the gospel according to Mark. Um, sometimes that looks like looking at the state of, of our hearts and our community and just asking some questions like, what might it look like for us to grow up into Christ? And that's kind of the backdrop of the series we find ourselves in called The Emotionally Healthy Church. Um, perhaps you're familiar with a, an author named Pete Scazzaro, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Um, Emotionally Healthy Church is the OG. Uh, it's like the first one in the series, and it's kind of the backdrop to the series. And back in May, we started this uh, this little conversation about emotional health and the way of Jesus, and what has pretty much been a thorn in our saddle uh, from the start is the thesis of Scazzaro's work, and it's this idea that we cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. We cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. In other words, if we still are tossed to and fro by fits of judgment and jealousy and envy and gossip and all of those things that feel like my day to day, then we cannot possess spiritual maturity at the same time. You see, you may have like a robust prayer life. You may even fast on the regular. You may say, hey, I observe silence and solitude and Sabbath, things that we'll be talking about in these coming weeks. And yet, if you are still governed by those fits of jealousy and cynicism, then the argument here is that your emotional maturity acts as a ceiling to every aspect of your life, the, the spiritual, the physical, the intellectual, etc. And so we, we just want to turn toward that and be formed wholly by the living God through the power of his spirit. And so, if you will... Um, I received this positive aspect because that can be kind of a hard way to start a teaching. Right? <laughs> like, um, I'm, am I low-key saying that you're emotionally immature if the shoe fits? Um, wow, we're, we're going strong here today with some pastoral love. All right, so said positively, God desires you and me and us as his church, especially this church, to grow up into women and men who actually have put on love and who are more and more able to do so. And, and what follows, though, is if our mat emotional maturity is shallow, our, our love will remain shallow as well. And so we want, we want to be able to go into the depths, to trust the Spirit, to lead us into those places and know that in the midst of that, we are secure in love and we can live from that place of love. And so lest love be stymied, we've really set our hearts to go beneath the surface with God. Um, that's kind of this central image throughout this whole teaching series is this idea of an iceberg that, uh, you know, it's about a tenth of the iceberg that remains on the surface and the bulk of it, nine tenths is beneath the surface. And so lest love be stymied, we've set out to go to those beneath the surface layers of our hearts and, and with God, just asking the spirit to search our hearts and to lead us in to healing so that we might increase in emotional maturity an emotional health, which around this time, maybe perhaps you could recite it back, but like we just have this little definition of emotional health, which is as follows, to increase in our capacity to notice, name, and attend to and love the things going on in and around us. And so that, that has been the trajectory of, our of, of these past seasons. And Lord willing, the trajectory of our lifetime will be to, to continue to do this. Like we won't finish this series in a few weeks and go, I am, I'm quite mature now. 
on to the next thing. It's, um, it's a lifelong process. And yet there's this, this movement where we may go down to the depths, and yet the question is, okay, how, how do I actually continue to live? Because do, do you just keep going deeper? And there are some seasons, right? There, there are some seasons where it feels like you will not get out of the depths, and it still is wise to ask the question, how? Like, if I'm secure in God's love, how do I live out of that? And so this last week, this week, and next, we, we're just going to attend to that simple question of, how? How can it be that I live from a place of emotional health with Jesus? And so we have three simple responses that are not comprehensive. They're just pathways. And the first is silence. Today we're going to talk about solitude and next week, Sabbath. Um, and so uh, to unpack this a bit more, if you would, you could flip or tap your way on over to Luke chapter 15. Um, if you're new to the Bible's table of contents, no shame in the table of contents game. Uh, so Luke 15, and if you're able um, to just honor God with our bodies, would you please stand with me as we read God's word? Um, there's something powerful about being able to respond with our bodies, not just to hear, but to then receive the information and then to like activate that. And so um, Luke chapter 5 Starting in verse 15, this is what we read. Yet the news about him, that is Jesus, spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. So before we uh, get into the passage, just ask you a quick question. When I say um, phantom vibration, do you know what I mean? No. <laughs> Linnea says no. Okay, well, it's that feeling that you get that your pocket is vibrating. It's this feeling that like an alert, a call, a text has come in and you're, so then you take your phone out to check it, but no, there is nothing. Your home screen is blank. Now, do you know what I mean when I say phantom vibration? How many of you, just by a show of hand, no shame here. How many of you have done this? Yes. Yes. Okay. We are in for it. I thought this was just another kind of urban dictionary, like slang term to describe our like compulsiveness and like minor digital addiction. But as I started reading more about this phenomenon, this is a legit medically researched diagnosis. This is phantom vibration syndrome. Welcome to church. Uh, Dr. Rosenberger, Dr. Robert Rosenberger, who studies the impact of technology on the humans. He says this, though through bodily habit, and I just thought this was a remarkably simple but profound statement, through bodily habit, your phone actually becomes a part of you and you become trained to perceive the phone's vibrations as an incoming call or text. And so due to these kinds of habits, it becomes really easy to misperceive other similar sensations. In other words, we have habituated ourselves to pay attention to what our cell phone is, is asking us to pay attention to. And that can be good, and it can be indifferent, and it can be challenging. Similarly, philosopher and professor Dallas Willard, who, um, if you've been around the Gateway Church for a while, you know he's like a mainstay, uh, a pathway to all things spiritual formation is Dallas Willard. Um, he, he talks about this this way. He says, the normal course of day-to-day -day human interactions locks us into patterns of feeling, thought, and action 
that are geared to a world, and then get this, set against God. Normal day-to-day human interactions lock us into a pattern that is set against God. I don't know about you, but my first inclination toward my phone or technology in general is not that it is inclining me away from God or that it is setting me against him. I, I, I think I have more of like an ambivalent uh, relationship with my phone, like I'm holding two competing things in tension where um, I know at some level that big tech is trying to like uh, harvest my time and attention for monetary gain and I like to listen to podcasts. So it's like I have these two things that I'm just there. And, and, and what this leads to, curiously, is, is, is us in the middle, captive to something. And I want to attend to that here in a moment by attending to what Jesus is doing in Luke 15. But this is what Quaker intellectual Douglas Steer, back in the 1960s, called interior immigration. And that is what it sounds like. The idea goes something like this. It's like, though we are bodily present, our minds are elsewhere. I think Rosenberger nails it. He says, we've become trained That is, we've become passively habituated to the tyranny of the urgent. Let me just say that again. We've become passively habituated to the tyranny of the urgent. And if you disagree, a moment ago you just raised your hand to phantom vibration syndrome. (laughs) There's something calling for our attention, and I I just want to submit that it could be the tyranny of the urgent. Henry Nouwen, the great Catholic theologian, said it this way, it is clear, at least to Nouwen, and he's got me convinced, that we are usually surrounded by so much outer noise that it is hard to truly hear our God when he is speaking to us. Is that true for anybody in the room? We've often become deaf, unable to know when God calls us and unable to understand in which direction he calls us. Thus, our lives have become absurd. In the word absurd, we find the Latin word surdus, which means death. A spiritual life, and pay attention here, folks, a spiritual life requires discipline because we need to learn to listen to God who constantly speaks but whom we seldom hear. Now, we could just sit with that, but what we do in this community is we we turn our attention not to commentary on the word of God or the life of God, but to God's very word itself. And so if you would look back down to Luke 5, with this in mind, that the pace of modern life, or at least the pace in the West, it could very well be governed by the tyranny of the urgent. But we don't have to be. That doesn't have to be our story. We can choose another way. Like we not only have agency at a human level to choose something, but check this, In Christ, we have the empowering presence of the living God. We have the Holy Spirit. So with agency in the Holy Spirit, we can choose another way. We can slow down for loving union with God. We can slow down through solitude. And in this place of solitude, like Jesus, we can allow solitude to be where we fight against the absurdity of our lives, where we fight against the deafness of God all around us and in us, where we push back against the tyranny of the urgent. And so with all of that in front of us now, look again at Luke 5, 15. Yet the news about Jesus spread all the more. 
so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Right now, um, the story of, of Jairus, who's a synagogue ruler, comes to my mind from Mark chapter five and where um, Jairus, he comes and he appeals to Jesus. And he says, my daughter is at the point of death. Would you come? And so Jesus, he, he receives the, the request of this man, the synagogue ruler to go to his household to heal his daughter. And on the way, it says that the crowds are pointing in to the point of suffocation. They're pressing in on Jesus. And in the midst of that, another person reaches out and grabs Jesus's cloak. This is Jesus's day-to-day rhythm. There's another scene in the Gospels where Jesus, he is essentially being who he says he is. And in that space, the crowds want to make him king by force. That is, they see in Jesus one who could overthrow the oppression that they're sitting in because they're seeing him literally set captives free. Captives in bondage to the oppressive powers of the day and in, po- and in bondage to sin itself. So Jesus is moving in the midst of these crowds and then check this out, verse 16, but Jesus often withdrew. He withdrew to lonely places and what did he do? What's it say that he went to do? Jesus went to pray. And I I don't think that Jesus' situation is all too dissimilar from our own. Now, granted, the the social location and the context, we are obviously not first century Jews living in Palestine, but notice how the tyranny of the urgent makes every demand possible regardless of the era, through whatever means possible. For Jesus, it's the crowds, But for us, it might be a phantom vibration in our pocket, among other things. My point is simply this, that if you're living in the 21st century, the tyranny of the urgent is here pressing in. And so the question, if we are to be people who are moving toward emotional maturity and emotional health, we're increasing in our capacity to notice, name, and attend to, and love the things going on in and around us. If that's who we're going to be, how might we do that? Quite simply, like Jesus And so let's just unpack that because verse 16 is quite instructive. Jesus's move is to often withdraw to lonely places and pray. So in the face of the urgent, Jesus withdraws. Just for a moment, just to think, um, how do you feel when things are urgent? You got, maybe right now your your, um, palms are getting a little sweaty. You're feeling a little like tight in your tummy. That's called anxiety by the way, Um, in the face of the urgent, Jesus withdraws. And my guess is is that we do too, but we withdraw to places where we define the categories. We seek control, but Jesus does something a little different. And the word here is, is instructive. I think it's helpful. And it's just fun to say the word for lonely places is this Greek word, eremos. Could you say that with me? Eremos. Yeah, that's nice. There you are. Just speak in Greek because it, but this Greek word, it sounds just like the English translation. This is one of those rare moments when you read it and you're like, you might be thinking the Bible teacher is going to say, you think it means this, but then you do a little juke and you're like, but it actually means this. No, lonely places are indeed lonely places. <laughs> desolate places are indeed desolate places. But the Eremos, we'll see that it also has a, a, a little spin in a moment. But when you hear desolate, what comes to mind? 
It's not really rhetorical. What, what comes to mind when you hear desolate? Empty, secluded. I, I, I just, because I, I know our, our little community, I wrote a few down. Maybe barren, bleak, stark, dismal. Those are not out of my brain. Those are uh, the thesaurus. See, for Jesus, the Eremos seems not to be entirely stark or dismal or bleak, but it seems to be where life actually is. His withdrawal is not passive. It's actually active and intentional. And here's, here's how I get there. Like, how does Jesus do this? How does this become a place of, of life? Well, it's that last word in verse 16. Prayer. Jesus withdraws from the hustle and bustle of the crowds to cultivate intimacy with the Father. By the way, that is a simple, not comprehensive, but a simple definition of prayer is to cultivate intimacy with the Father. And Willard, kind of channeling the great tradition, he unpacks this so clearly, at least to me. So listen in to this and follow along. In solitude, we purposefully abstain from interaction with other human beings. And some of you are like, yes, I've been waiting for this teaching to abstain. Now we have, yes, okay. We purposefully abstain from interaction with other human beings, denying ourselves companionship and all that comes from our conscious interaction with others. We close ourselves away. We go to the ocean, to the desert, to the wilderness, or to the anonymity of the urban crowd. This is not just rest or refreshment from nature, though that too can contribute to our spiritual well-being. And listen in here. Solitude is choosing to be alone and to dwell on our experience of isolation from other human beings. More concretely, Ruth Haley Barton says it this way, solitude is when we intentionally withdraw to give God our full attention. So in the tyranny of the urgent, I, I have an impulse to withdraw, but it's not to give God my full attention. It's to distract from this urgent pressure of the moment. Jesus withdraws for life. He withdraws from the distraction of the crowds to give his full attention to his Father in heaven. And Jesus, this is where we actually see another way to live. And then I imagine even for the most introverted among us, uh, the one who, this, this is like for those in the room who relish their quote unquote me time, I imagine that in your me time, you encounter the moment where you have curated in your mind the scenario. Your roommate is going to be out, and so you have the book in mind. Maybe even you have like some, um, like a diffuser. You're diffusing some essential oils because you're, uh, I don't know, an evangelical Christian or something, and you felt guilty for not buying it from your mom or your aunt, and so you're like, okay, I got my oils diffusing, and I've got some nice ambiance. I got my book. I'm gonna like, I got a, I got a rug. Maybe it's a little chilly outside. The whole scene is curated, and you get there. And then you're like, oh gosh, was that my phone? Oh no. And you're sitting at these moments and all of a sudden our mind is racing and we can't, we can hardly be there. What is that? Why is that the case? Why is it that we want solitude, but then we get there and it's almost like it feels suffocating to be in that space? As Richard Foster phrased it, he is a, like a, just a, a beautiful thinker on all things spiritual discipline. He calls it fear. 
And it's been, it's so helpful to hear that named as such because I was trying to identify that and I was like racking my mind doing these mental gymnastics of what is that? Why, why do we feel that? And then that, those simple four letters, this one word, fear. And he describes it, it's this fear of becoming unimportant or unneeded, insignificant or useless. And so we want the solitude, we want the me time, but to give our full attention to God, even in the midst of that, there's this fear that we might be useless. And so we avoid withdrawing lest we be forgotten. And again, Willard, I would say for the win, he says this, solitude, like all the disciplines of the spirit, carries its risks. And he says this, this might sound kind of odd, but tune into this. Because in solitude, we confront our own soul with its obscure forces and conflicts that escape our attention when we're interacting with others. Just pause right there. Have you noticed how adept, like how good you are at being who the person you're talking with might want you to be? Or, or how you, um, think about this, have any of you interviewed for a job recently? Or, or just think back to the time when you had interviewed. You like put on a persona of sorts. You, you make a resume, you present yourself in a certain way, and maybe that's more formal, but I think we do that in informal ways. Solitude rips all of that away, and there it's you before the living God, and in the midst of that, solitude is a terrible trial, for it serves to crack open and burst apart the shell of our superficial securities. It opens out to us the unknown abyss that we carry within us and discloses the fact that these abysses are haunted. Now, maybe that's a bit wordy for you. Um, it's a bit wordy for me. I guess that's all of Willard's writing, so um, don't start with Willard. Like, hit up Adele Calhoun, who will read it here in a moment. But as I think about that interior tension of coming to that moment, I mean, this is a short passage, Luke 5, 15 and 16, the, the, the tyranny of the urgent, but Jesus withdrew. Did he feel that tension? Like these are the questions we get to ask, not have to, but we get to ask this of the scriptures. As we become students of the word, we come to those moments and we go, what did that feel like? What was, what was that like for, for the crowds to be pressing in? Have I... Have I like felt that in this season? Willard goes on, he says, we can only survive solitude if we cling to Christ there. And yet we find of him in that, yet what we find of him in that solitude enables us to return to society as free people. So I think that's the mystery of this thing is at least for me, like I am not necessarily conflict averse, but I'm negative feeling averse. I don't want to feel the bad stuff. And so I think I can do challenge. And yet, if it's, if it's somebody who I know already ruffles my feathers, I might want to steer away from that because it might evoke some negative feelings. And so I just, I don't really want to feel that. And so it's, a, again, it's this different type of withdrawal. But what I'm encouraged by here is at least in Willard's assessment, when we go to this place of solitude, this intentional withdrawing to give our full attention to God, there we will actually find him. What if you came to church today just to hear that you can actually find the God who we know and love and call Jesus? 
Would that not just expand the horizon of your life, whether you're 25, 35, or 85, just to know that in, the, in this very moment, in this very season, you can find God and be found by him. But it might take intentionally withdrawing and giving your full attention to him. Because that's the place where we can actually be free Jesus intentionally moved away from being important, from needing significant, like needing the significance of the people around him. And because of that movement away from significance, he actually goes toward freedom. That's, that's like the upside down move of the kingdom of God. And it, it can be really easy to try and map like Jesus's life onto our own rhythms as though like he just needed a breather from the crowds. So I don't know, this whole solitude thing might just be a bit overplayed. This, I don't know, it seems like more interpretation. Like you're only, this is two verses, Kyle. How are you getting all of this? Well, you see, I'm, I'm not the first person who's come to these things. And when I say great tradition, I'm talking about the two millennia of followers of Jesus who have said, how do I follow Jesus, be securely situated in his love and then live out of his love? How do I do this? And person after person looks to Jesus intentionally withdrawing and says, I too must curate in my life a time and a space to withdraw, to give my full attention because I want to be free. Paul will say in Galatians that we are free. And if we are, but, but if we're free, why doesn't it often feel like that? See, this is not an isolated moment. In fact, this is where we get to, um, we get to the Eremos again. We get to this lonely or desolate place. These, these were for Jesus the first, his first Eremos were the 40 formative days of his life. 40 formative days of solitude. Check out how Adele Calhoun in her work on solitude describes this. And this is a lengthy quote. Um, I just want to quote her at length because it would be silly if I just tried to rephrase it. Um, so she says it better than I can. So um, if you're an auditory learner, close your eyes. If you're visual, track along. No doubt Jesus intended to commune with God alone. But he also encountered the tempter in that desert place. Mark writes, at once the spirit sent him out. The language is actually a bit more intense there. The, the language is ekbalo. It's this intense to cast out. The spirit cast Jesus into the desert, into the Eremos. And he was in the Eremos 40 days being tempted, that is to be tested by Satan. Solitude is a formative place because it gives God's spirit, and pay attention to this, time and space to do deep work. Just pause right there for a moment. I, I've noticed myself praying and praying with great fervor for God to do a certain thing. Those would be like, maybe it's in my life or the life of this community, whether it's intercession or petition, but like to, to do the, this deep work. And yet, I noticed that curating a time and a space of solitude remains one of the most challenging things for me to do. So I don't, I don't say this as somebody who I've walked through it. I'm saying, I'm finding freedom here as I go there. Will you go there with me? But know that there are some challenges along, along the way, which is, I, I guess, our desire to be formed deeply by God, but also our fear of being insignificant there. 
But I just, I pause to say this because God is able to do a deep work in us. And when no one is there to watch, to judge and to interpret what we say, the spirit often brings us face to face with hidden motives and compulsions. The world of recognition, achievement and applause disappears and we stand squarely before God without props. In solitude, Jesus did battle with the intoxicating possibility of achieving his kingdom and identity and the power of the self. He faced down the self Satan offered and instead chose his true identity as the beloved son. Throughout his three years of ministry, Jesus returned again and again to solitude where the rush of attention and accolades of the crowds could be put into their proper perspective. Solitude with God was a way Jesus remained in touch with his true identity in God. And it can be for you and for me. We talk a lot about identity, identity politics. We talk about identity formation. We have pronouns on our profiles. And I I think we talk about it so much because it is significant. Because who we are shapes how we are in the world. And so if we know that we are God's beloved, we are situated squarely in his love, then we can from that place move forward. But how, how do you remember who you are? But Jesus often withdrew to the lonely and desolate places to pray. We withdraw into that place. We too, with agency in hand and the Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us, we can choose another way. We can slow down for loving intimacy with God. We can choose solitude. We can push back against the absurdity of our lives where we are deaf to, God, deaf to God's voice and we can begin to hear him as we push back against the tyranny of the urgent and remember who we are in God's presence. And I, just to be, can I, can I be vulnerable with you all for a moment? Thank you, Brian, for the, head, the encouragement. Um, I don't really like teachings like this. It's much easier to go through a passage and to walk through, um, to study it, to see the context, the language. Oh, this verb's here. Oh, that's an interesting word choice. And to just unpack that and then to just say, and go and do likewise. But you see, in this little series, we've had these two goals, and one is corporate, one's personal, and the corporate one is to have that shared definition of emotional health that we would notice, name, and attend to, and love the things going on in and around. And the second is that I would not ask you all to do a single thing that I'm not willing to do. Um, And I share that in part for accountability, but I also share that because this, this stuff, like the fear that Foster names, that fear of being unneeded or unnoticed, I had no idea how deeply seated that was in my heart. And yet there's an actual movement forward because this leads to a really practical question of what, what, do, we, what do we do? Where is this place called solitude? It's actually closer at hand than you might think. See, we need to do a couple of things. Like if, and by the way, this is all invitation. If you don't want to do this, that's fine. Um, but I would just, I would encourage you as you're like, as you're stepping into this journey with Jesus or you're continuing in it, 
that there is more in life and his name is Jesus and he's inviting us into those deeper places of intimacy and belonging. And it might mean a change in how you do your routine, a routine you've been situated in for decades, but you need to choose a time and a place. You need to choose a, a, a time that where you're going to be able to withdraw from the crowds. And like for me, if I just leave a crying baby on the floor, that's not a good time to leave. <laughs> so, so there's some wisdom. You might actually need somebody in your life to support you. Like, I need to get away. And if you need that, like we want to be the type of community that gives our time away so you can withdraw. But if you don't tell us, we don't know. So I'm, I'm like asking, please tell us what your needs are. If you can't do this, we want to help you carve that time out to curate that in your life. And, and I just think when you find that time or that place, or maybe you don't know, here's just a couple of things that are really practical. You could do a legitimate retreat. It used to be in Sherman Hill. It was called Emmaus House, um, but now it's over in Urbandale. But you can do a day retreat there. And they will guide you through some spiritual practices. Um, they'll, they kind of have like an Ignatian spirituality. So if that weirds you out, we can talk about some other alternatives. But if you want like a legitimate day just to sit in the silence and be guided through that with some other folks, Emmaus House. You, you, could, you could take a pre-dawn walk. I know, God forbid you get up before the sun. But... Let me just tell you, when you see the day awaken and you remember that God is the one who set the hosts in the heavens and that he has caused this day to come into being and you are alive and you're drawing breath, there is something, something beautiful that can take place in that. Or maybe you're not a pre-dawn kind of walker. Um, you can plan many eremoses. In your day, those are different than mermosas. Um, you can plan many eremoses. Thank you, um, our young adults, for laughing. I thought it was funny. Keep, take five minutes and with gratitude, just express your gratitude to God. Step away from your desk, set your technology down, look outside, go, I had no idea there's catbirds in my neighborhood. Huh, that's curious. And you just take a moment, take those things in. You could, this is gonna be a bit scandalous, Leave the podcast or the music off during your morning commute. This morning I was um, standing on Ingersoll waiting for the bus and I had a little podcast in and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to preach on leaving the podcast off. <laughs> so I, like, I put those things away. I was, it was so boring. Go figure. Um, I like how Richard Foster describes this. He says, place your children and spouse into the loving care of God. If you have children or a spouse, do that. If it's not your roommate or your parents or your cousin or the person across the street, pray for the person in the car ahead of you. Consider the lilies of the field, how they differ from the frantic scramble of human activity around you. Try driving slow. Choose the slow lane for a change. Bless those who cut you off. Do not curse them, bless them. Literally, listen for the divine impressions of upcoming meetings, relationships in the office, creative solutions to troubling business solutions. Do you know that God actually cares about the work that you do? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? He's interested in the whole of your life. He wants to situate you in front of him and him in front of you so that you together and you as a part of a corporate body called the church could show what it's like to be loved by God, to live from who you are, from your belovedness. And maybe you're at home in this season, so just consider this for an afternoon while you're like doing another thing like cleaning, 
turn off your phone. Like airplane mode that thing. Turn the TV off. Like turn the Spotify off and just clean or work on a hobby. And just notice what's happening in yourself. So we have choose a time and a place and then begin this thing. Notice what you feel. See, Jesus often withdrew, which means that he had multiple times where he would do this. This was not a one-off thing. This was a regular rhythm of his life. And as we said last week, last week this just comes from my own insecurities and, I don't know, neuroses. Just beware of perfectionism. Beware of idealism, which can very easily lead to legalism. See, the point of withdrawing to be in God's presence is to move toward freedom. And so if you feel that idealistic voice clamoring up for attention, be still. And maybe this is just for me, but I just want to remind us all that this, this call to solitude, this is not something we win you don't crush solitude. You don't like, I nailed that silence. No, this is a place where we actively receive because solitude is when we intentionally withdraw to turn our full attention to God. It's where we let go of our utility. It's where we release pragmatism as our highest value to say that we are loved and then live like we actually are. And then as we drift, I would just encourage you, look, Back to last week of just this simple prayer word that Jesus prayed, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. If you start to drift, allow that to be scaffolding to draw you back. And by the way, we have no idea if this is what Jesus did. <laughs> it says he often withdrew and to pray. We don't know the type of prayer. Was he praying the Shema from Deuteronomy 6? We have no idea. You have beautiful imaginations. Use them. Come on, like this is you and the living God. Am I the only one who gets excited about this? I think not. Just imagine what your life would be like in the felt presence of the living God. And then how you could give that away to this community because we are hungry for it. I don't, I want it. And I hope that as my, I'm like praying for God to make my wanter hungrier. I know that's really odd grammar and language. But that's what I want for us, is to be, like, have this fierce appetite for Jesus. And so may we too, like Jesus, may we set up these little Eremoses in our life to remember who we are. And we actually have one right now for us. And so if you would, if you would stand with me, this is, um, this is what we do as a community. Uh, we, we draw our, our worship through like singing, worship through the word, the call to worship, the, the confession, the assurance. And, and we come to this place of the bread and the cup to remember the love of God poured out, the, the body of Jesus broken. And so I would just invite you, I'd invite you to, to take the bread to take it in as God's, as like your spiritual food, to remember that God's love was so vibrant, so persistent, so all-giving that he actually gave himself over to death, even death on a cross. So would you take the body of Jesus and remember his goodness? As Jesus was leading towards the cross, he was actually with a group of his friends and he was remembering, re-remembering the, the deliverance of God at the Passover meal. And he takes a cup 
And he says, this is the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. And so I would invite you to take, and by taking, it's not the absolving of your sins, it's the remembering that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that that is the truth that we live from. It's finished. The striving is over so we can enter into his rest. We can enter into his forgiveness. We can be the type of people who move into the freedom of God. And so let us, let us take and remember. And as we turn to worship and song, I would just invite you, I'd invite you to consider, like, this might be really odd for you. Just asking Jesus, where are you inviting me to be with you? To, show, to ask, ask him, show me where. Show me where. So let us, let me pray. Let us continue to worship. Holy Father, we say that you are good and that your love endures forever. We thank you for your loving kindness, for your faithful mercy, that every day we can receive what you are offering. So as we turn to you, as we ascribe worth to you, would you help us would you help us to not rid ourselves of ourselves, but to be more truly who we are, to remember the love of the Father, and perhaps for the first time ever, the first time in a long time, would you, Spirit, would you pour the love of the Father abroad in our hearts so that we might know that the hope that we have in you, Jesus, it does not put us to shame, but it holds us secure. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray.